Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Avedisian, the Mad Shaman, a production of CosmicReality.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Ani Avedisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three parts spirit, one part rational mind. Add two drops of optimism. Give it all a good, hard shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy. Sit back, sip slowly, and contemplate the wonder of cosmic co-creation. And a hearty hello to everyone out there. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining me for yet another round of cocktails on this week's Metaphysical Martini. The show that tries to sort out what's true, what's woo, and what gets flushed down the loo. In today's, as we expose the deep state poo, will we have a white hat military coup? That ain't no Biden. Someone behind that mask is a Hayden. How obvious does it have to get before we take our palms and call Boba Fett? Will the mind-controlled zombies ever awaken and realize this country is something they have a stake in? Often confusing, somewhat amusing, the media is cruising for a bruising, strange little world. As always, my darlings, we try to do this with as much dignity and decorum as can be mustered on any given day. And I laugh because, as always, we are not really successful, and I will admit to that. But we are on a bound to give it our best shot. And on this show, the Metaphysical Martini Show, we do love the odd shot now and then. Yes, we do. In fact, let me take a sip of today's concoction and see if it's a winner or a sinner. Hold on, darlings, don't go away. Sipping is happening. Hmm. A little more tart than I thought it would be, but very pleasant flavor overall. Um, I can go with that. Yes, no sinning here. That is a winner, and more about that towards the end of the show. Um, <clears throat> mm, yeah, that is quite nice. If you're joining us for the first time, a very warm welcome to you, you lucky people. Be advised, this show is politically incorrect because we do not wish to erode the intellect. Martini heads come from all walks of life, all denominations, all socioeconomic groups, but we are united by common sense and common decency and common courtesy. We share, I would say, a libertarian ideology, as did our founding fathers, and we are unashamedly patriotic. God bless America, and to those who mess with the Star Spangled, prepare to be arrested, tried, and quite possibly dangled. Martini heads believe America has a sacred purpose in mankind's ascension, and we brook no threat to this great land and all she stands for. We support the Constitution. We like our guns. 
We dislike big government, and in particular, the present puppet regime funded by Lucifer's totalitarian minions. So, darlings, if you're okay with all of that, welcome on board, welcome, welcome, and if not, go in peace, and may the odds ever be in your favour. So today is Wednesday, December the 20th, 2023, so allow me to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a blessed Yuletide. It's the most wonderful time of the year, and it is indeed my favourite time of the year. I love Christmas, I love Yuletide, I love the solstice, I love singing carols, and I love spiked eggnog. Well, I like the spiky bit, the eggnog's a bit much, but, you know, in particular, I love my beautiful blinged out Christmas tree, and the almost overwhelming representation of Yuletide in my cosy little home. Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat. Please put a penny in the old man's hat. If you don't have a penny, a halfpenny will do. If you don't have a halfpenny, then God bless you. And thanks to the aforementioned puppet regime of doom, gloom, and we all go boom, the festive table will be a tad lean for many folks this year. So let's all do what we can for friends and family who are struggling this year, especially for those with children or elderly to care for. It's not always easy to ask for help, is it? We all have, is it pride, a little bit of self-respect, self-esteem, that culture of I don't need a, a handout. But if we can give our friends a hand up, um, you know, they, may, they might not ask for it. So just listen a little more carefully this year. That's, that's my advice anyway. What are we doing today? Well, on today's show, we have, of course, quack, questions, answers, and comments, which is always the meat of our show. It's the reason we started this show in the first place, to see what you, the people, are thinking about. We're going to have a silly poem or two, written by that infamous radical street poet of no note, which would be, of course, me. And we have awesome American civics, which has been very well received, and I thank you for that. And we also have wild and wacky tidbits from the anus of history. And finally, my favorite part of the show, the cocktail of the day, because after all, my darlings, Metaphysical Martini is where the Holy Spirit meets top-shelf distilled spirits, and that, if I may say, is a match made in the heavens. Cue celestial music. So let's get on with the show, and let's start with Quack. If you would like to share your thoughts with Martini heads across the known universe, send your emails to me, Arnie at ArnieAvadician.com, or if you prefer snail mail, Cosmic Oni, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070, USA. And don't forget to let me know if and how you wish to be identified, or I shall refer to you as omit personal details. Let's shake up this fishbowl of perpetual perplexity that fills up every day, and let's see what pops up. Shaky, shaky, I'm gonna shaky, shaky. All right. This first one is from Gordon, who asks, Dear Ani, can you explain devolution in plain English? My friends are talking about it and I'm lost. 
Yes, Gordon, I think as long as it's just plain English, I can explain just about anything. In its simplest form, devolution is a form of decentralization. For example, delegating the powers of a central government to a state or a local regional level. So this gives the regions power to pass legislation relevant to their locality. And of course, it gives them a greater sense of autonomy. So here in America, for example, something that's legal in California, although I don't know if anything is legal in California anymore, but moving on, say that something is legal in California, it might be illegal in Texas, and that works. But it doesn't mean the states are seceding from the union, not yet anyway. It means they don't have to go along with everything the central government comes up with. And that, my dear Gordon, is a very good thing. And devolution can occur without making changes to the Constitution. I mean, making changes to the Constitution is a very long process and almost impossible, which is why the present puppet regime chooses to ignore it and poop all over it rather than try to get amendments through because we the people are waking up and we will not allow those amendments to go through. And with regard to devolution, it's not just America with the sovereign states and, you know, the Native American regions. You know, in the UK, there's uh, Ulster, Scotland, Wales. They all wanted more autonomy and less centralised control. And I think except for Wales, that actually went quite well for most people. But we also see it in areas where ethnic minorities may feel slighted. Uh, in Spain, perhaps the Basques and Catalans. Um, places that are multicultural, like Sri Lanka, Indonesia. So there's your 101 definition of devolution. I might also suggest, Gordon, that you go to Rumble, um, you know, rumble.com, and look at a channel called Badlands Media. And there's a chap there called Patel Patriot, and he has a devolution power hour, and he discusses devolution in more depth. I think you'll find it useful and enlightening. And, and you know, just like Cosmic Reality Radio, uh, Badlands Media has a lot of content that will wake you up and explain things to you in plain English. So thank you for the email, Gordon. And thanks for bringing up an important point. Uh, my fellow Americans, if you are unfamiliar with the term devolution, now is the time to familiarize yourselves with it because you are going to see it is a big part of winning the war against evil. So what else is in the fi this is this drink is growing on me. Let me take another sip. Hold on. Hold on. Mm. That's refreshing in a sort of clean way. Mm. All right. Let me look in the fishbowl and let me see what else is in there. Oh, here's one from Libby. Libby, who asks, I am interested in learning white witchcraft. I want to weave magical spells into my baked goods and share them with my friends. Ani, I have two questions for you. Question one, regarding the baking, is it okay to give the bread and cookies without telling the recipient I have blessed them? Question two, I burn candles when I meditate and contemplate. Is the color of the candle really that important? So Libby, first, let me say, although I fancy myself as a bit of a kitchen witch, I am not a Wiccan, 
nor do I belong to any formal witchcraft, clan or coven. That said, I am well versed in comparative religion and certainly qualified to answer your question. Question one, is it okay to give people food which you have blessed without telling them it is blessed? Unless your blessing is one of explosive diarrhea, stomach cramps and general ill will, I don't see a problem with it. After all, I believe we should all bless the food we eat and the food that we prepare for others. It's not so much about glorifying God as, as, as making the food safe, really. And question two, is the color of the candle important? You will find, Libby, the more you study, the more you will realize the answer is yes, the color is important. Let me see if I can remember a lovely little poem written by Dorothy Morrison. She wrote that excellent Witcher's Shadow book titled The Craft. Um, it's a classic and I highly recommend it for all wannabe witches. Proper colors for a spell make them work extremely well. This list will make your magic strong, so study carefully and long. The candle colors listed here and all your spells will bring you cheer. For lustful love whoa, and hot desire, use a candle red as fire. If tranquil peace you now pursue, burn a bit of palest blue. For protection you may use the same, likewise if your health is lame. Pink for harmony and love and perfect union from above. If to attract is your intent, orange is what the heavens sent. If your hold on things in time goes sour, use purple to regain your power. To increase your bank account, light green candles round about. To ground yourself and make it stick, brown candles always do the trick. To organize, use deepest blue. For stress relief, a lavender hue. Use teal for balance, peach for friends. Black puts black habits to an end. Use white if you must substitute. It contains all hues of color suit. If you burn white, instead it's true. You must concentrate on the proper hue. Use these wisely, learn them well. For each and every time you spell. You weave a dream that you create into a realistic state. The universe will not say no, but confusing it may cause you woe. Color is important. It affects our energy. It affects our vibe, our mood. Ask anyone working in sales and marketing, and they will tell you how they agonize over which colors will sell the most product. So thanks for the email, Libby, <clears throat> and thank you for the chance to talk about spell crafting once again. Um, it's been a while since we had a witchy question. You know, before the death jab came onto the scene, I had a nice little office here in Wilsonville where I would see clients and groups in person. And one of those groups was my kitchen witch group. And I do miss those days. It's all on Zoom now and it works OK. You know, of course it does, but it's not as cozy as people showing up with their little pet dogs and we put the kettle on and we boil our herbs and, ah, well, those were the days. All right, enough reminiscing. Let's take another email. And this is from Emily in San Diego, California, all the way down there. Woohoo! let me take a drinky. Mm. <clears throat> ah. All right, um, I've got a bit of a frog in my throat today, but <clears> throat> nothing to do with Pepe. <laughs> 
Okay, this is from Emily, and she says, Ani, I am asking you this question. Well, clearly, because here it is in front of me. Um, because I know you come from London. Why do British people call their sausages bangers? <laughs> well, Emily, never let it be said that the British are afraid to bang. Um, it goes back to World War II and to food rationing. Meat was a scarce commodity and the British love sausages. So to bulk up the sausages, butchers used fillers soaked in water. They would use grain, bread, rusks, sawdust for all I know, but that sort of thing. And, you know, it would be wet. Now, what happens when something wet hits the oil? It explodes. It goes bang. Now, modern day bangers don't explode, thank God, but the name stuck. And bangers and mash will always be a British staple. And now, Emily, thanks to you, I'm hungry. So <laughs> thanks for the question and happy bangers to you. What else do we have in the fishbowl of perpetual perplexity? Let's have a little bit of a shuffle. Let's see. This is from Omit Personal Details, who says, Dear Arnie, we are told that if we forgive something or someone, it never happened. My problem with that is that it did happen. If it had not happened, we wouldn't be having a conversation about it happening and forgiving it. How does pretending it didn't happen help? It doesn't make sense to me. Well, Omit, phrased in that way, it doesn't make any sense to anyone, does it? Of course it happened. And forgiving it does not erase the event or remove it from the timeline. Forgiving it means you are no longer affected by it, no longer triggered by it, no longer traumatized by the event. The event that happens now can't disrupt your future in any way. So that's the big difference. By forgiving, you have taken away all of its power over you. And that's a very good thing because it brings peace of mind to all the parties. Here's one from Mel in Sioux City. And Mel says, Dearest Arnie, I think it is time we rethink Christmas celebration. As a Christian, it gives me great joy to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And while I agree it is appropriate to rejoice and to make a loud noise unto the Lord, I feel we have lost the true meaning of his coming. He came to save us, to rescue us, to enlighten us, to restore the world to sanity, to grace. And the wise men brought him gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, precious but useful commodities. Today's shopping sprees are a far cry from precious and useful. There is an unhealthy sense of expectation with gift giving. We have lost our way. And I feel we should do something about it before the Christmas story becomes nothing more than a fairy tale. Now, Mel in Sioux City, you're not the only one who thinks this way. Mm. 
So, I have to ask, when you say we, who do you mean? Are you suggesting that Christmas activities should be formalized and dictated by a central authority? You see, you are free to celebrate as you wish. If you and your clan want to rethink the meaning of the season, who's going to stop you? As long as it harms no one, worship as you please. You don't have to follow the crowd, but you have no business telling the crowd to follow you. I mean, do your own thing. Be happy, man, you know? For many people, myself included, the story of the nativity is a fairy tale because it's a story shared by many prophets. You know, the lowly birth, the virgin mother, the star in the east, the wise men, and most of them have some sort of crucifixion event. You know, and even if we believe Jesus was an actual person, which I myself do believe he existed, I have a relationship with him and great reverence for him. But even if we believe, you know, people these days are asking some very sensible questions about religion. They're asking, why are we worshipping the prophet instead of the God he came to glorify? Why are we worshipping the pointer and not the one he pointed to? So the way I see it is this. Whatever you choose to believe is your affair and our founding fathers agreed. However you wish to worship is your affair. If it's Christ mass for you, then go for it. But for others, it might be winter solstice or Yuletide or the spaghetti monsters big pasta dish event or something else, because our celebration since antiquity revolved around the movement of the heavens and the changing of the seasons. Different races added their own local color to it, names were changed, we rinsed, we repeated, we put a different spin cycle on it, and then, you know, on and on and on. Now, I agree with you about the wasteful spending and the unhealthy sense of expectation. I believe we should put more thought into gift giving, but again, there is no need to succumb to social pressure and get into deep debt just to keep up with the Joneses. If we want to stop the out-of-control commercialization of Christmas, we should stop buying the products that were created for it. Stop feeding the beast and start a movement, you know, starve the beast. Start a movement with your like-minded community in your own church or wherever it is that you worship. So if you want to make changes, I mean, I'm with you, man, go ahead, make those changes, but ask yourself what you really mean by we. We are individualized souls, each with unique personalities, cultural backgrounds and life paths. Conformity is not necessarily a desirable trait for a co-creator. Live and let live. Do your thing. And I genuinely, from the heart of my bottom and the bottom of my heart, I wish you a very Merry Christmas. You know, my darlings, as we continue to expose the corruption in our midst, every brick in the matrix wall will crumble. Religion <clears throat> will be the last to fall, but fall it will, because it is insane to fight each other while worshipping the same God.
And the cabal, of course, knows this and takes full advantage of it and loves to feed our insanity. Sad, but true. Religion is a human construct. Mankind is a divine construct. There's a little thought for us to, you know, put in our pipe and smoke. Shall we take another question? Let's go for it. Uh, this is from Clara or Clara. I'm not sure how you pronounce your name, my darling, of no location who asks. What? <laughs> I remember this one. What? <laughs> I love these questions. I love them. What is the purpose of existence? <laughs> she says, we came from nothing and we made things. Some things are good. Some things are bad. We created planets and puppies and solar systems and sausages and galaxies and goats and people, and chainsaws, and roast beef sandwiches. Why did we do this, says Clara from No Fixed Address? What is the point of it all? Who or what does it benefit? Maybe we are all test subjects in some mad scientist's cosmic lab. Maybe we are all fleas living on a dung pile made by a huge dinosaur or some type of reptilian being. And Arnie, what happens when all existence ends? Will there be such a thing as the end of time? Was there such a thing as the beginning of time? And when time ends, what happens next? Do we review our handiwork and start all over again? Are we living in a computer simulation? Is it a free-for-all or are some parts of our lives pre-programmed? And if so, who programmed us and why? And if all points in time and space exist simultaneously, how exactly does that work? It doesn't make sense. Is time travel possible? Ani, why are we here? What a fabulous question. My darling Clara, we are here to figure out the answers to all the questions you have asked. We exist for the sake of existence and where it will take us. We are cosmic space adventurers. We boldly go forth, create worlds, learn to negotiate life on various realms of creation. We mess them up and we try to fix them. We exist because if we didn't, what else would we do? Just sit around in the islands of paradise, the home of source energy? and wonder what we might create if we did something with all of our unfulfilled potential? We find purpose as we evolve. It's not pre-written. We are that which we are. And we shall become that which we will become. And Clara, that alone is good enough. I think you want to really start to enjoy the journey we don't have cliff notes. We don't have the end of the story. We're on an adventure and that's empowering and enlivening. We can do whatever we want with our lives. We can sit and be part of the matrix and destroy all hope. Or we can get up and go, let me look up the meaning of the word sovereign 
and let me try to live up to that. You can sit on a rock all day long if you want in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and eat bonbons. Where you'd find bonbons in the middle of the Pacific Ocean is, you know, I have no idea. But you can do it if you can get Amazon to send you bonbons out there. You can do whatever the heck you want. You figure it out as you go along. So despair not, my darling Clara. I think the fact that you are asking these questions means you've actually figured out the point of your incarnation, the expansion of consciousness. Huzzah, Clara, and a very Merry Christmas to you, or whatever the heck you celebrate. Ding, ding, may it be gorgeous with bells on. And I think, my darlings, I should have a sip of my drink right now, because I thought that was a fabulous answer to a fabulous question. Oh, cheers to me. And I think we can leave quack there for today's show. Many thanks to the martini heads who wrote in to share their wisdom and their concerns. It gives me genuine pleasure to be a clearinghouse for your ideas. And it also keeps me on my toes because you guys are getting brighter and brighter and asking better and better questions. And yeah, I need to keep up with all of you. And now, my darlings, segue. <laughs> segue into a little pat of poetry. Yes, folks. After a hard day's shamaning, I like nothing better than coming home, putting my feet up, having a nice cup of tea or a small drinky poo, and writing really bad, but occasionally brilliant, non-peer-reviewed poetry. On today's show, I have a small selection of my favourites for you, and I will start with one of my seasonal favourites, Ode to a Christmas Pudding. A Christmas pudding is a noble beast revered and welcomed at every feast. When doused with brandy and set aflame, the wildest heart is soothed and tamed. Your virtues would fill a leather-bound tome. Therefore, I welcome you, good pudding, into my home. And my pudding arrives from the UK tomorrow, Thursday. I am so excited. Okay. Here's another little poem I wrote the other day while experimenting with a new type of martini, um, the, the cocktail, of course, not the podcast. Um, in short, it's, a, it's very short, it's sweet, it's full of buttery goodness, um, and I have titled it To All the Carbo-Loading Carol Singers. So here we go. Let us be honest and accept this unpleasant fact. The odds are against us. They are most heavily stacked. We will not honour our New Year's resolutions. Our chance of compliance is at best Lilliputian. There's shortbread and cake. There will be puddings and cookies. It's the holiday hunger games and we are no rookies. It's a challenging time for self-esteem and self-worth as we watch the expansion of our waistlines and girth. Strange forces take over. The sugar gods giggle as they watch our flabby bits jingle and wiggle. What fun they will have at our expense. The very thought actually makes me quite nervous and tense. And yet, the allure of a table fully laden, 
brings out my dark side, the hungering pagan. Cool heads should prevail, but alack and alas. When it comes to pastry, I'm at the top of my class. I need no encouragement, no guidance, no goading. I admit I'm proficient at carbo-loading. Will this year be different? Will I employ common sense? I could just stay home. Oh, the suspense. I've had an idea to prevent cardiac ablation, a novel idea which we call moderation. If I rethink and regroup and take control of my mind, I can resist without feeling maligned. Yes, that's the ticket. That's what I'll do. I'll take tiny bites and my cravings subdue. How clever am I to come up with a plan? My health is assured. <laughs> oh, wait, is that Mexican flan? Let me be honest and accept this unpleasant fact. The odds are against me. They are quite heavily stacked. I will not honor my New Year resolution. My chance of compliance is at best Lilliputian. And as honest as that is, I have to say I have been very careful with my diet of late. About time too, I would say. I'm in my mid-60s now. And if I'm going to live another 20 years or more, I want quality of life. I want to be in good shape to see the deep state machinery dismantled. I want to be in good health as I see the scales fall from the eyes of we the sheeple. And I want to rejoice as I see the sheeple reclaim the title we the people. And that is, I think, an excellent segue to... American civics. Darlings, the reason the establishment does not encourage teaching civics is blatantly obvious. If we studied our history in depth, we would be in awe of what was achieved, and we would all eat, drink, and pee red, white, and blue. American colonials defeated the greatest standing army of the day, not overnight but with grim determination by both military diplomacy and colonials wishing a better future for their progeny, we broke free from the royal yoke and created a republic. So today on Awesome American Civics, I would like to discuss how the Articles of Confederation organized our first national government. And transparency, I am borrowing, albeit loosely, from the textbook we the people, the citizen, and the constitution, level two. Our first national government was the Continental Congress. The Continental Congress drew up a constitution stating its powers. This was called the Articles of Confederation, and it wasn't without its problems. Forging a new nation from scratch is a messy business and not for the weak. And we, my fellow Americans, are not descended from weak men or weak women. We are descended from visionaries, hardworking visionaries with grit and gumption to spare. So let's talk about the Articles of Confederation, the problems we had with it, and how it caused the founders to write a new constitution. So point to remember, when we started the war against Britain, 
each state was like a separate nation. Each state had its own constitution, and to the people, the state was pretty much their entire country. The founders believed that a national government was needed to unify the states because unification would increase the chances of victory against Britain. And a sort of national government would also be able to manage conflict between the states and better control and regulate trade. But more than that, unifying the states would give America a stronger position in all things international. On June 7, 1776, Richard Henry Lee introduced two proposals to the Second Continental Congress. In one, he proposed independence from Britain. In the other, he proposed a national government to unify the states, and both proposals were accepted. Our nation's first constitution was the Articles of Confederation, adopted 1777. Final approval by all the states was in 1781. And that's the year the Articles came into effect proper. Not without challenges, though. I mean, what type of national government should be created? How much power should it have? And what was the mood of the people? Now, remember, the colonials feared a strong government. The British government had deprived people of their rights. Would the national government be any different? What guarantees will be made? And at this time, unlike today, the people were very vocal about government accountability. They didn't want to be ruled by a bunch of millionaires from their ivory castles. They wanted to be involved. They wanted to be informed. Another issue was the fear that some states would have more power in a national government than others. And the state leaders wanted to be sure that a national government would not threaten their state's sovereign interests. So how states would vote in Congress became an important issue. Would the states with greater population and wealth have more votes than other states? If decisions in Congress were made by majority vote, would the majority use that power for its own interests at the expense of those in the minority? So the founders, they had a bit of a think and they came up with a solution. They agreed, yes, a form of central government is needed and the people fear a strong central government. So their solution was to create a weak central government. So under the Articles of Confederation, the national government was simply a legislature. It was Congress. It had no judicial or executive branches. This left most of the power with the states. Every action taken by Congress had to be approved by the states. And about the problem of representation, how was that resolved? At that time, the Articles gave each state one vote in Congress. The more populous states did not have more than one vote. And in important matters, such as declaring war, nine states would have to agree. That way, the less populated states could not outvote the larger states. So we created a weak, or should I say, a limited government. But it still had some teeth. 
It successfully waged war against Britain and won our independence. Huzzah, that uh, deserves a drink. Um, it also negotiated the Treaty of Paris, the peace treaty that effectively ended the American Revolution. It provided that each state recognize the laws of the other states. For example, a marriage valid in one state would have to be valid in all states. It allowed citizens to travel freely from one state to another. And criminals who crossed state borders could be sent back to the state in which they committed their crimes. The real biggie, though, was it passed the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. And many people do say this was the most important law passed by Congress under the Articles. It gave people in the Northwestern lands the right to organize their own governments. And once they had done so, they could ask to be admitted as new states with the same rights as the original 13 states. And the law also provided for public education. It forbade slavery. And Western settlers were guaranteed freedom of worship, the right to trial by jury and due process of the law. Now, these are all major accomplishments. And, uh, you know, fair dues to the founders and their fledglings for getting it done. But was it problem free? No, there were problems along the way. Congress, for starters, didn't have any money. And they didn't have the power to raise any money. All they could do was ask the states to pay a fair share. And some did, others not so much and some outright refused. And Congress really had no effective power to force them to pay. Another problem was the delightfully rebellious demeanor of the newly empowered Americans. Congress had no power over the states and the citizens. State governments and citizens often ignored laws passed by Congress and Congress had no way of forcing them into compliance. Um, one example, once the Revolutionary War had ended, Congress signed a treaty with Britain, promising to respect the rights of the loyalists and ensure they were treated fairly. Some state governments, um, well, they outright refused. <laughs> they would not return the property confiscated from the loyalists. They also refused to force payment of money owed to loyalists before the start of the war. The national government was um, was shamed because it was not able to honor its promise to Britain. Which Britain didn't deserve, but, you know, honor is honor, right? You make an agreement, you're supposed to stick to it. And also Congress had no power to force states to live up to their agreements when trading with foreign countries. It was apparently not uncommon for citizens to order product from abroad and then refuse to pay. This made foreign countries unwilling to trade with Americans. And the trickle down effect of this, if I may use that term, was disastrous. So fooey on those bad boys who gave our new republic a bad name. Congress had no power to regulate trade among the states. States taxed goods going from one state to another. It didn't work well. It was a bit of a free for all. And ultimately, business slowed down. The economy suffered 
and many people lost their livelihoods. It wasn't easy for people to wrap their minds around, you know, having a unified government. You know, they had, they had lived and worked a different way. The mindset still hadn't changed. Now, another problem, a very important one, was property rights. And as we Americans know, the right to own property is a great part of our sovereignty. Many believed the states were doing a poor job of protecting property rights. Certain factions within the states were seen to be promoting their own interests at the expense of the common good. Oh, say it ain't so. Certainly, there was bad blood, you know, um, after the war. There always is after wars. It's not very easy to forgive after a war. And certainly people will make a buck or two on the sly at the expense of others if they feel they can get away with it. And things got a little rough. And now the mood of the people was changing and they were beginning to think that a national government maybe should have a little bit more power. So we find ourselves now in 1786 and Americans are in financial deep doo-doo. Trade suffered, businesses failed, many people were in debt, and the soldiers who had so valiantly fought in the revolution, a great many of them had not been paid. So we can say the country was unstable and Congress was pretty much powerless to do anything about it. Now in Massachusetts, there were some really big problems. The farmers there were in trouble. Farm prices were low. And when the farmers couldn't pay their debts, many lost their farms, they lost their homes, they lost their livelihoods. Some even went to prison. And it was claimed that the new state tax was the root of this evil. And as a result, they claimed the state was not protecting their interests, not protecting their sovereignty. And that, of course, was the very reason we broke away from Britain. And that's when we have this very serious um, series of dramatic events known as Shays Rebellion. To prevent the state from confiscating their farms, the local farmers under the leadership of one Daniel Shays began to close down the courts where their cases were being heard. We should do the same to the courts, trying Trump for exposing the truth. We should, but you know, okay, moving on. Shays Rebellion. So this action against the courts spread to other towns and also to neighboring states. It really caught on. And in January, 1787, Daniel Shays leads 2000 rebels to Springfield, Massachusetts to raid the federal arsenal for weapons. Now, as you can imagine, this frightened people, in particular property owners. Americans watched the national government fail at maintaining law and order. But we have to thank Daniel Shays and his band of rebels because it forced people to examine the weaknesses of the national government. It was evident that the regulation of trade could not be discussed separately now from the larger political issues. And there was a general discontent among the people. Something had to be done if the Republic was going to make it. So we find ourselves in Philadelphia 
with Congress inviting all the states to a convention for the sole purpose of revising the Articles of Confederation. There's your Philadelphia Convention, often referred to as the Constitutional Convention. Meeting was held in 1787 by delegates from the 13 states that then comprised the United States. At first, the purpose of the convention was to address the problems the federal government was having ruling the states and staying fiscally sound under the provisions of the Articles of Confederation, which had been the prevailing code for the government since 1777. But what actually occurred at the Philadelphia Convention was the formation of a new plan of government, which was outlined in the newly drafted U.S. Constitution, Created by compromises struck by delegates proposing different plans, the Constitution strengthened the federal government, and it remains the document which defines U.S. law to this day. And now we all know the things that we should have known in school by the time we were 14 years old, had our education system served us better. And we'll continue with uh, what happened after that on my next show. But for now, a little bit of fun, a little civics quiz. So when you become an American citizen, for those who don't know, you have to jump through a lot of hoops and you have to learn civics and American history and you have to have a face-to-face -face interview with somebody from the Department of uh, Immigration. And these are some of the questions. Now, there's a hundred questions. I'm not going to ask them all, of course, but uh, I'm going to give you five seconds to answer. See if you can answer these questions. Here we go. First off, who wrote the Declaration of Independence? Thomas Jefferson. Number two. When was the Constitution written? Seventeen eighty seven. Number three. Who is the father of our country? George Washington, also our first president. Number four. What territory? did the United States buy from France in 1803? The Louisiana Territory. Number five, name one war fought by the United States in the 1800s. You could have said the War of 1812, Mexican-American War, Civil War, Spanish-American War. Next question. What was one important thing that Abraham Lincoln did? Well, you could have answered the Emancipation Proclamation where he freed the slaves. I would say that he also preserved the Union, saved the Union, and he led the United States honorably through the Civil War. And the last question. Who was the president of the United States of America during World War One? Number 
and that would have been Woodrow Wilson, the man who sold us out to the Federal Reserve. And there'll be more of those questions on every Martini podcast going forward. Uh, I think we, you know, we call ourselves patriots. We really need to know the answer to all of these questions. And now, my darlings, I'm going to... Um, I think we should have some weird and wacky holiday tidbits from the anus of history. Uh, let's keep it with a Christmas theme. Let's have a bit of fun. Fruitcake. Do you like fruitcake? I love fruitcake. It is the ultimate trail mix. It is the ultimate carbo-loading food. It's wonderful stuff. I don't know why it gets such a bad rap. But if you didn't know, if you were to place a piece of fruitcake under your pillow, you will dream of the person you will marry. Isn't that interesting? I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, I, I have a, a wonderful partner and I'm not going to marry anyone else, but I'd be terrified if I was an unmarried woman in case it was some spotty, ugly person. All right, what else can I share with you today? And I you know, thank you to the people that send me these little tidbits. I, I really do enjoy getting them. Um, this one says, you might be curious as to why a Christmas carol, one of the most famous Christmas stories of all time is a ghost story. Well, the Victorians, who helped cement many of our modern American ideas of Christmas, they loved scary stories. In fact, A Christmas Carol was far from the only Christmas-themed ghost story Charles Dickens wrote. Christmas was once a more spooky and scary time, rather than the warm and fuzzy little Christmas that we have today. There used to be a huge supernatural component to Christmas. You know, in some parts of Europe, it was believed that supernatural activity was at a high on Christmas Eve, sort of uh, on the way that they think it is on the Day of the Dead. And in Germany and in Poland, it was said if a child was born on Christmas Eve, they were considered more likely to be a werewolf. Well, of, of course, I mean, how logical that certainly makes sense. Um, if you go to Camden, New Jersey, and you go to the Adventure Aquarium's ocean realm, there in the tank is a scuba diving center. He goes underwater instead of flying, and every year he goes for a dip in his red robe and hat, um, and the kids can stop by and snap selfies and write letters, and also check out the world's tallest underwater Christmas tree. And that's in Camden, New Jersey. And Kansas City, very interesting, is one of the places I'm considering moving to when I move away from Oregon. Um, they have this thing called you know, the Kansas City Symphony, of course. And they have an annual thing called a tuba Christmas. And it's a massive gathering of tuba and euphonium players of all generations and skill levels. Oh my God, it sounds like a cacophony. Um, and in the past, this musical celebration has brought together as many as 500 players. So if you want to spend your Christmas in Kansas City, 
listening to hundreds of players of various different skill levels who may or may not be able to play the tuba and euphonium. If you think that that is your idea of a jolly good time, then head on down, my friends, to Kansas City because the tuba fest of your dreams is uh, is, is taking shape there. Um, and then finally, in Mobile, Alabama, or is it Mobile? I don't know. I'll have to call someone in Alabama and ask them. Um, Every Christmas, the residents of Mobile, Alabama, Alabama, Alabama Mama, skip the Santa outfits and dress like workers for Santa. In other words, they dress like elves, and it's an elf-a-palooza. And they sing Christmas karaoke, and they watch the classic movie Elf, which is lovely. They sip hot chocolate, which they probably lace with some sort of liquor. Um, and they're trying to beat the Guinness World Record for the most... Santa's elves in a single location, which is currently held apparently by a group in Bangkok, Thailand. Isn't that fascinating? In Thailand, well, you know, our Asian friends do love very cute things and they're very good at making cute things. So I'm not surprised they like the elves. So that's some of the things that you can do for your Christmas celebrations. And remember, folks, you don't always have to do the traditional thing. You can start your own traditions. All traditions were started somewhere by something, you know, by someone. Some of them are ridiculous. Some of them are crazy. Some traditions are like peer pressure from your ancestors. So if you don't like them, if they don't make sense to you, Start your own traditions this Christmas. Let's do it. Oh my gosh, people, look at the time. I'm going to have to say, my darlings, I think that's almost it for today. I've finished my drink and it was lovely. Many thanks to Mystical Wares in Mount Vernon, Washington, for making intergalactic distribution of this show possible. Mysticalwares.com, brimming with spiritual sass, online or on location. You'll be sure to give them a standing ovation. And all that's left for me is to wish you a Merry Christmas, a blessed solstice and a cool Yule. And whatever you celebrate, do it with a joyful heart. And when it comes to holiday spending, let's be smart. Today's real life cocktail was a Christmas pomegranate martini, four ounces of pomegranate juice, three ounces of vodka, one ounce dry vermouth, one ounce orange liqueur, half an ounce of simple syrup, shaky, shaky in the shaker, Throw it into a nice chilled glass and decorate it, dress it with some some pomegranate seeds and perhaps a little orange twist. Absolutely delicious stuff. I have very much enjoyed it. Now, remember, folks, cocktails are great if they are an occasional treat. If you use top shelf ingredients and take the art of mixology seriously, one drink, baby, one drink is all you need. I am Oni, mad as the day is long Abedition. This was a Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio, to whom we are most grateful. Until we meet again, be kind to your liver, go easy on the sweet stuff, and above all, my darlings, let the spirit inhabit the human. Merry Christmas! You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini with Ani Abedisian, The Mad Shaman, a production of CosmicReality.com.